Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 346. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man. What a show. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is, you'll not believe it, Fiction Crawler number 15 by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Then we have a Hugo nominee story, one of the 2014 short stories by Rachel Swarsky. It is up for a nomination. It is If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love. We have that. With kind permission from Apex Magazines as well. So a big thank you goes out to them. The main fiction this week is Shatter Down by Suzanne Palmer. That is it. That's all coming into today's show. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up though, don't forget, bang that drum. Yes, we are looking on this kind of month of trying to get some donations in. It hasn't been up to, it hasn't been very good up now. So if you like what you hear and you kind of want to support this show, please, we could do some kind of funding to keep this baby going. That would be fantastic. Please, I will again, I will mention it a bit later on throughout the show as well. But don't forget, you know, we need kind of funding for this. So first up, my good friend, my good friend that I've never met. <laughs> In real life, I've never given him a, like a proper bear hug. And when you listen to him, you'll realise why I want to do that. One day I would want to do this with Matthew Sanborn Smith. The guy is just fantastic. Matt. Hey there, fellow travellers on the HMSS sofa. This is Matthew Sanborn Smith, fresh from a 10-month stint on the sofa bilge pumps. I'm the guy who pumps all the vacuum back into space. That's right, you're welcome. And when I'm not doing that, I also pump up the jam. Remember that next time you're in the mess holding your toast under the jam faucet. So, now I think you owe me a listen, no matter what sort of nonsense I spew. Oh yeah, this is Fiction Crawler. Should have mentioned that earlier. I think I'm getting to the point that the listeners have forgotten who I am by the time I get on here. That's okay, I'm supplying a wide variety of experiences with one article. To some of you, this is a brand new segment. To others, it's more of a where are they now piece. Let's leap into the stories, shall we? I really don't like zombie stories. I couldn't give a damn about social media stories, but put them together and have Benjamin Rosenbaum write it and I'm there. The story is called Feature Development for Social Networking and you'll find it at Tor.com. Just imagine what kind of Facebook posts might start flying if there really was a zombie outbreak. The story feels a lot like you think it might actually play out. Emotional freakouts and unbelievable jerkwads abound. Okay, you can find that on Facebook right now without the need for zombies, but their presence makes it all the more interesting. The most throat throttling part of the text is what you and I wouldn't normally see on a social network and that's the inter-office emails of the social network staffers themselves as they work out what new features to add to their service in light of the plague that's got everyone's attention. That feeling in your gut is the icy inhumanity. Trolls below, corporate sucky people above, when I started this you thought the zombies were the scary part. 
If you know the fiction crawler, you know we're taking at least one trip to StrangeHorizons.com per segment. If you haven't read the work of Brooke Bolander, you have to trust me when I say I could have recommended any of a few different stories to you here. Every one of hers that I've read has been wonderful. The story you're going to get is called Tornado Siren, and it's the tale of a decades-long love story between a woman named Rhea and a tornado. Potentially the ultimate bad boy, our funnel cloud reveals its romantic side, literally showering Rhea with gifts. Rhea, however, tends to focus on the concomitant destruction that each of its visits brings. Who says love is easy? Tornado Siren is a great introduction to the author's style. In the vein of Ellison and Bradbury, Bolander's writing feels like she's made her way through an old consignment shop, pulling out all those wonderful words and constructions that have been there all along, but you've forgotten to use in favor of your boring old standbys. Her nouns and verbs give bouncing life to inanimate objects, or in the case of this story, highly animate objects. Her work is a pleasure to read sentence by sentence. Give it a whirl. Now there's a pun shitty enough to come straight from the mouth of a news anchor. Let's run back to Tor.com and read The Oregon Trail Diary of Willa Porter by Andy Marino. As the title implies, this one reads as a series of diary entries by a daughter of institutionalized parents who gets swept into pioneering with her aunt's undesirable family. It starts out as any real-world pioneering diary of an entertaining narrator might. It's a spate of delightful griping. About a month into the journey, reality seems to become rather tired of its old ways. Rain falls and doesn't seem to end. Oxen cower and drunken buffalo surround the mud-choked wagon train. As the days pass, our pioneers sink into depressions. Nature, which has always had them surrounded, begins to crawl right on top of them, and their very bodies and possessions begin to morph into uncivilization. This story is the best kind of weird. Explanation is for the weak. Crazy crap is going down, and the best you can do is hang on and hope you survive. Not unlike the actual pioneers of days gone by, though more surreal, to be sure. The imagery of decay and transformation sows itself into your mind, and even if you escape to the far side of it, you won't escape unchanged. So if you haven't been paying attention to the science fiction world at all for the last month and a half, you don't know that the June issue of Lightspeed Magazine was a special Women Destroy Science Fiction issue edited by our own Christy Yant. Women also destroy your eyes from reading so much because there is a dockside warehouse full of things to peruse in this issue. Don't think I'm cheating by recommending one of the shortest pieces in the mag. It's dense with goodness. The story is A Debt Repaid by Marina J. Lostetter at LightspeedMagazine.com and it's flash fiction, so I can't tell you too much without giving the whole thing away. Here's an awful lot anyway. Jessica's got a gambling problem and owes a dangerous amount of money. Smart enough to realize she can't gamble her way back, her plan for making that money is to undergo a certain type of operation. What type might that be? Well, the story is narrated by the extra head that's been surgically attached to Jessica's body. You'll never believe this, but it turns out two heads are worse than one. Imagine the bad decisions you make in a week and then double it. It's a great new angle on an old idea. Maybe this one could have been called Women Destroy Herself. I love the shit out of some Octavia Butler, but even so, I usually have one of two reactions after reading her work. I'm either so depressed I want to throw myself off of something, or I think, bleh, get it off me, get it off me! Her Hugo and Nebula winning story, Bloodchild, which you can find over at BaneEbooks.com, gives you a little dash of both. In it, a small pocket of humanity is kept off-world as something akin to livestock by an alien race called the Tlick. Let's try that again. Tlick. And if that was the extent of the relationship, this might feel like one of a hundred such stories. But the meters-long click seem emotionally attached to the humans and like to cuddle, wrapping their many, many limbs lovingly around their property. The first third of the story feels like having to sit on the knee and be hugged for too long by a sweaty cousin by marriage. What exactly are the aliens keeping the humans for? 
Yes, we did get two new Butler stories last month from Open Road Media, but we still didn't get enough short work from the master overall. And when you read Bloodchild, you'll agree. Not only does it capture the creepiness and slow-seeping horror of long-term relationships between subjugator and subjugated that her novels so often do, but the pacing here is perfect. It pulls us through with mystery and dread, grabbing us by our short-haired curiosity as if it were the alien flick of the story and we were the fatted humans. All right, we are the fatted humans. Butler never lets her readers off easily. In her dramatized looks at the powerful and powerless, she always flips the greater than lesser than equation once or twice and makes us feel sorry we're tangled so thoroughly in our own confusing 7 billion person power play. Let's shake that one off and lighten it up at podcastle.org with Daniel Abraham's short-form epic, The Curandero and the Swede. Listening to it, I was reminded of Neil Gaiman's Sandman series and that The Curandero and the Swede is a story about stories and storytelling. Appropriately enough, it's told as a series of embedded stories. Should I say story a few more times? But really, readers and writers alike eat this stuff up. It reminds us why we love fiction so much. In it, a man brings his fiancée to the old homestead to meet the family, and after asking how they met, an old uncle goes off on a ramble telling a story about a man he used to work with and it rolls out from there following tangential characters and branching off until soon you're asking what the hell is this story about or maybe you're not because really you wish your oldster relatives were this much fun to listen to the old guy tells us of subdermal lumps that whisper profanities revenge seeking ghost women on lonely highways mysterious frontier suicides and a rabid fight between man and god if the characters in these meanderings have anything in common it's that they're souls are weighed down by problems they didn't necessarily create. They seek help from supernatural powers. While they never seem to get what they want, they do get something, and with that, the best they can do is deal. This is sounding too much like real life. Thousands of years before we had computers, we began running simulations of situations and human interactions to figure out ourselves and the people around us. We call it fiction, and even though we have computers now and do run those simulations, most of us prefer to go back to fiction, and in fact, use our computers to read even more. That's all I got you, my pretties. The links to all these nifty stories are in the show notes. Find out how they end so you can tease others. But don't blame me when your legs fall asleep because the stories are so good you're spending far more time on the toilet than is healthy. Or savor them one story a year. That way it'll almost be time for another fiction crawler by the time you're done. You can enjoy me at Beware the Hairy Mango in the meantime. Until whenever then is, this is Matthew Sanborn Smith reminding you, until books are outlawed, only in-laws will have books. I'll bet you appreciate your creepy cousin by marriage a whole lot more more now. Good night. There you go. What did I say? Remember the last time we got we met in such ridiculous times when we kind of did an interview. I did an interview with Matt. And that's the reason why I want to kind of give Matt a... What's he like, man? That's what he's like. Do you know what I mean? What a lovely, sweet guy as well. Matt, Fiction Crow, it might not come... It's often, you know what I mean, but do not stop them. Do you know what I mean? Make it once a year if you have to, but they're fantastic. So, next up is a short little short story. The 2014 Hugo nominee by Rachel Swarsky called If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love. And like I say, this narration originally appeared on Apex magazine and is used with their kind permission. So a big thank you to everyone at Apex as well. You know, good luck with the, this Hugo nominee. I'll give you a little heads up about Rachel. Rachel Swarsky hosts an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers Workshop and attended Clarion West in 2005. Her short fiction has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies and has been nominated for the Hugo Award and the World Fantasy Award, amongst others. 
If you were a dinosaur, my love received the Nebula Award for short story in 2013. And Rachel also says as well, she's not a dinosaur, nor is she married to one, but she encourages all paleontologists and people related in related fields to get on recreating some because, come on, that would be so cool. The story is narrated by Lynn M. Thomas. I'll give you a little heads up about Lynn. Lynn is the former editor-in-chief of Apex magazine from 2011 to 2013. She co-edited the Hugo Award-winning Chicks Dig Time Lords as well as Chicks Dig Comics. She moderates the Hugo Award-winning SF Squeecast, a monthly SF and F podcast. In her day job, she is the curator of rare books and special collections at the Northern Illinois University, where she is responsible for the papers of over 60 SF and fantasy authors. You can learn more about her as shenanigans at lynmthomas.com. And like I say, a big thank you to Lynn and Apex Magazine for letting me play this story. You know, this is kind of, you know, one of the big ones of the year for the Hugo Award, and it would be nice to kind of just, you know, a big thank you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love, by Rachel Swarsky. If you were a dinosaur, my love, then you would be a T-Rex. You'd be a small one, only 5 feet 10 inches, the same height as human you. You'd be fragile-boned, and you'd walk with as delicate and polite a gait as you could manage on massive talons. Your eyes would gaze gently from beneath your bony brow ridge. If you were a T-Rex, then I would become a zookeeper so that I could spend all my time with you. I'd bring you raw chickens and live goats. I'd watch the gore shining on your teeth. I'd make my bed on the floor of your cage, in the moist dirt, cushioned by leaves. When you couldn't sleep, I'd sing you lullabies. If I sang you lullabies, I'd soon notice how quickly you picked up music. You'd harmonize with me, your rough, vibrating voice, a strange counterpoint to mine. When you thought I was asleep, you'd cry unrequited love songs into the night. If you sang unrequited love songs, I'd take you on tour. We'd go to Broadway. You'd stand on stage, talons digging into the floorboards. Audiences would weep at the melancholic beauty of your singing. If audiences wept at the melancholic beauty of your singing, they'd rally to fund new research into reviving extinct species. Money would flood into scientific institutions. Biologists would reverse-engineer chickens until they could discover how to give them jaws and teeth. Paleontologists would mine ancient fossils for traces of collagen. Geneticists would figure out how to build a dinosaur from nothing by discovering exactly what DNA sequences code everything about a creature, from the size of its pupils to what enables a brain to contemplate a sunset. They'd work until they'd build you a mate. If they built you a mate, I'd stand as the best woman at your wedding. I'd watch awkwardly in green chiffon that made me look sallow as I listened to your vows. I'd be jealous, of course, and also sad, because I want to marry you. Still, I'd know that it was for the best that you marry another creature like yourself, one that shares your body and bone and genetic template. I'd stare at the two of you standing together by the altar, and I'd love you even more than I do now. My soul would feel light because I'd know that you and I had made something new in the world, and at the same time revived something very old. 
I would be borrowed, too, because I'd be borrowing your happiness. All I'd need would be something blue. If all I needed was something blue, I'd run across the church, heels clicking on the marble, until I reached a vase by the front pew. I'd pull out a hydrangea, the shade of the sky, and press it against my heart, and my heart would beat like a flower. I'd bloom. My happiness would become petals. Green chiffon would turn into leaves. My legs would be pale stems, my hair delicate pistols. From my throat, bees would drink exotic nectars. I would astonish everyone assembled, the biologists and the paleontologists and the geneticists. The reporters and the rubberneckers and the music aficionados, all those people who, deceived by the helix and fossil trappings of cloned dinosaurs, believed that they lived in a science fictional world when really they lived in a world of magic where anything was possible. If we lived in a world of magic where anything was possible, then you would be a dinosaur, my love. You'd be a creature of courage and strength, but also gentleness. Your claws and fangs would intimidate your foes effortlessly. Whereas you, fragile, lovely, human you, must rely on wits and charm. A T-Rex, even a small one, would never have to stand against five blustering men soaked in gin and malice. A T-Rex would bare its fangs and they would cower. They'd hide beneath the tables instead of knocking them over. They'd grasp each other for comfort instead of seizing the pool cues with which they beat you, calling you a fag, a towelhead, a shemale, a sissy, a spick, every epithet they could think of, regardless of whether it had anything to do with you or not, shouting and shouting as you slid to the floor in the slick of your own blood. If you were a dinosaur, my love, I'd teach you the sense of those men. I'd lead you to them quietly, oh so quietly. Still, they would see you. They'd run. Your nostrils would flare as you inhaled the night, and then, with the suddenness of a predator, you'd strike. I'd watch as you decanted their lives, the flood of red, the spill of glistening, coiled things, and I'd laugh, laugh, laugh. If I laughed, 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 I'd eventually feel guilty. I'd promise never to do something like that again. I'd avert my eyes from the newspapers when they showed photographs of the men's tearful widows and fatherless children, just as they must avert their eyes from the newspapers that show my face. How reporters adore my face, the face of the paleontologist's fiancée with her half-planned wedding, bouquets of hydrangeas already ordered, green chiffon bridesmaids' dresses already picked out the paleontologist's fiancé, who waits by the bedside of a man who will probably never wake. If you were a dinosaur, my love, then nothing could break you, and if nothing could break you, then nothing could break me. I would bloom into the most beautiful flower. I would stretch joyfully toward the sun. I'd trust in your teeth and talons to keep you, me, us safe now and forever, from the scratch of chalk on pool cues and the scuff of the nurse's shoes in the hospital corridor and the stuttering of my broken heart. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Rachel Swarsky's. Rachel, a big thank you for that and a big thank you to Apex for letting me use that story and letting me use that audio production as well. Lynn, what a, what a fantastic narration. Thank you so much.
So as I mentioned, uh, yes, we are looking in this month to try and rake in some donations to keep it going for this kind of next year. That's how we kind of do things here. We try and get some donations going. Just Yes, you just give with money. It's as simple as that. And that's how we kind of keep on going. And that's how we bring in kind of cracking stories like that and, you know, making sure we get Matt back on as well. So please think about donating, just one-time donation, monthly donations, or if you want to come over and join up the private members club, so for notes and you know join in there and you get all the kind of free stuff that i'm giving away there that's all the kind of starship so has three annual annual audio books annual collections the anthologies we've got the tales of terrify in there we've got all the kind of video lectures i did and stories as well from different writers so and that's ongoing as well and last week i put up the first part of an audio book that amy's reading for her so it would be fantastic if you come over and support the show. That Sofa Notes is £6, or you can sign up for a £2.50 a month donation, or a £5, or a 10 or a 20 Whatever, you know, whatever you kind of fancy. It's, but it's kind of this drip feed into the account, into the kind of sofa coppers that we kind of need, just to keep going six months down the line. Do you know what I mean? That's what would be really appreciated. So listen, how are you? If you do, do it for me, there you go. <laughs> I tell you, this is this is a dedication, mind you, because I'm recording this on Wednesday. Where I just, I've actually think of, <laughs> I'll not tell you the, the the bad bit of it, but I think I poisoned me dog, one of me dogs, and that's why I'm recording this really late because I take I'm trying to get fit. I've got one of these up bracelets. I'm going a little bit off track here, but bear with this for a quick second. And I walk along this kind of coastal walk to a place called Suta Lighthouse. Have a look for it on Google fantastic gorgeous i'm so lucky we've got these walks but i've just discovered this rare poisonous plant there type in rare poisonous plant suit a lighthouse and i'm sure one of my dogs is at this bloody plant because for a week it's just been hideous in this house you know what i mean you're kind of rushing the dog to the door because you can hear this kind of grumbling in his guts and oh it's just horrible and he's now getting well, I think he's touch where he's getting over it now, but he's, he was, say, four days ago, he was he finding it hard to walk. Do you know what I mean? And it's got all the symptoms of this bloody poisonous plant. So the, the knock-on effect is life's been a bit upside down and I haven't had time to record the show, apart from Wednesday, finishing an early shift. I've just come straight in. I'm all done up with my shirt and tie on and my coat. I haven't even took me... Listen. I haven't even took my coat off to get a show done. So... There you go, that's from my point of view, that's the dedication. So if you can donate, that would be fantastic. But I think it's Baxter's dog, I think he's kind of all right there now. He's still walking a little bit gingerly, but he's got a bit of a spring in his step and he's eating his food again. So hopefully I haven't poisoned him too much. <laughs> still going to go down that walk, mind you, because it's just gorgeous, them walks. But anyway, I've digressed. Next up is, oh, we've got a fantastic story for you. Shattered Down by Suzanne Palmer. I'll give you a little heads up about Suzanne. Suzanne Palmer is a Linux systems administrator, writer and artist who lives in the wild hills of western Massachusetts. Massachusetts? It's hard for a Geordie to say that. Somewhere amidst the, amidst the moose and mosquitoes, a lifelong reader of science fiction and fantasy, she started writing on a dare and promptly became addicted to it. 
She's published stories in Asimov's Interzone and Black Static, amongst other places. She's currently putting the finishing touches of a novel set in the same universe as much of a short SF and is already bursting, busily plotting the next. Stuff will blow up in it, certainly. She will be at Worldcon in London in August and hopes people will say hello. Well, Suzanne, I, I will be propping up a bar and I know Amy's going as well. So let's come over and say hello. And this story is just narrated spot on. This is narrated by Iba Amagas. And Iba's done a few stories for her. And just, whoa, what a treat is her in for. Iba is a nomadic screenwriter director, mostly based in Seattle. The trailer for her first feature film is due to release in September 2014. And she currently works as head writer for a new show by Zombie Orpheus Entertainment. She regularly, make, she regularly makes terrible life choices. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I've done a few of them, man. Yeah, but she regularly makes... I'm not going to start there. She regularly makes terrible life choices in the pursuit of stories and is very bad at finding time to work on a website. You can follow her exploits at Iba Amicus at Twitter. There you go. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Shutter Down by Suzanne Palmer Four moons dotted the distant horizon, pale ghosts half lost in shadow, and framed on either side of Shoy's heavy black boots, propped up against the observation glass. She slouched in her chair, mute earpiece dangling at the base of her neck, her eyes and attention on the gas giant below. Ammonia clouds seethed and spun endlessly, bright rivers of gold across its radiant face, deadly and compelling. Her dive sphere was rolled towards the oncoming night, engines in standby, no interior lights except the tiny blips of critical systems to break the spell. If she dared close her eyes, she knew the planet would still be there. She had no doubt it would be the last thing she ever saw. It was just a matter of when. Not today, she told herself. Tomorrow is a possibility. She laughed, a hollow sound. From orbit, tomorrow was as near or as far as she wanted or dared. Assuming she didn't get caught, of course. The unspoiled view wasn't the only reason for running dark. Somewhere out there, Elise was waiting. They'd met, each surprised and uncertain to see the other, on the viewing platform of the Protectorate Orbital Station. Elise stood straight and tall, standing out against the backdrop of motley, milling tourists in her crisp white uniform. So Joyce spotted her first and froze in the crowd, as those two bright eyes swept slowly over the meaningless people, to be stopped, startled by a too familiar face. Kinney and Haas, Elise said, little flyer. You've hardly changed. I tried, so Joy did not say. Instead, they clasped arms and embraced. Old friends, lovers once. You stayed, she said. And you returned, Elise answered. I never thought you would. Neither did I, she said. Need was an unbearable master. She kept her sphere in the updraft of a high-pressure band, trailing just outside the uneasy junction between dusk and night. The blinding glare of the sun was behind her, ripping through the clouds below. Tiny traces of green and brown stained the edges of the upwell, the light catching here and there, in the faint diamond sparkle that had earned Pilati the nickname Shining Giant. When she'd first been brought here aboard the Ama, the glitter had been a glare, 
like stars themselves were being born in the planet's toxic halo. How could it have dimmed while that day was still seared, permanent and bright, across all fields of her mind? Do you know me? she asked the planet below her feet, its churning face a vast, inscrutable mask. If planets had memory, it would. Dinner, Halise had said, not really a question so much as an assumption. It was easy to say yes, with food to fill the space between them. Other things might be less obvious. The droid didn't have anything to wear, beyond the clothes on her back, not that it wasn't meant for space. Black tank top, black pants that had been cut to de-emphasize her thick muscular build, black boots that gave her extra height to hide from the world that she'd been grown small. She'd given up caring enough to hide her skin, saw it as a defiance. Elise hadn't flinched, hadn't cared all those years ago. At this moment, Sejoy despised her for it, for being here now. There was a cafe on the upper decks of the station, the ceiling a dome of X-glass that was all that lay between the chattering people poking at their desserts with shining forks and a short, sharp death. The station spun edge-on to the world as if to foster an illusion that they were co-conspirators, equals side by side. She preferred it beneath her boots. Police was waiting at the table already, and stood as she walked onto the deck. Heads turned their way, then away again, talking behind their hands as if they could conceal their curiosity. One of them, she heard. An original. One of the rescued. I thought they were all dead. Look at her skin. Do you think it hurts? Ah, Elise said. So graceful as always. I forgot how much I love to watch you move. She smiled, genuine affection in it, and Sejoy forgave her just a little. She put her hand on the back of the chair, found the mag release, and slid it out before letting it click back onto the floor. Sitting, she turned her head, scanning the room and heads turned back to their own tables as her eyes reached them. You shouldn't do that, Elise said. Make people uncomfortable. Notice or care if they are. Sejoy shrugged, passed a hand over the tabletop to activate the menu display. They have anything edible here, she asked. After a moment, she added, or affordable? Elise leaned back in her seat. She was still wearing her uniform, although the jacket was unbuttoned, revealing a crimson blouse. It's on me, she said. One of the perks of being stationed here. Free meals. Possibly because there are 17 menu items and they never change. No matter how good they are. If we had to pay to eat the same thing over and over again every day, we'd hurl ourselves down into the clouds in despair. Sidroit laughed. I've done it, she said. It doesn't work. Sorry, Elise said. After an awkward pause, she brought up her own menu, though she must have had it memorized long before now. None of you ever came back here, except Mirja, you know, she said at last. And, well, why did you? Come back. Yes. Not for the same reason as Mirja. Exactly for the same reason as Mirja. Because staying away was just another death. Why, then? To remember. The others? Myself, Sejoy said. Too much. She selected an item nearly at random, turned the menu off. Let's hope the pasta's decent. Now, 
what are your thoughts on the wine? She rolled her dive sphere down into starboard, keeping it steady along the shifting edges of the upwell. The horizons remained clear, as it should be. She'd hoped the wine would get Halise talking about her work and the protectorate patrols, but instead Halise wanted to talk about Sejoy, where she'd gone, what she was doing with herself now, and again that persistent question of why she'd come back. At least the pasta had been good, and the portion large. Sejoy craved carbs like a furnace, always burning, seeking fuel. In the time since the ama, she had become acquainted with the luxury of a full stomach, and found it hard not to pursue at any opportunity. Even alcohol didn't provide a significant challenge to her overdrive metabolism, more was the pity. Clear-headed and clear-eyed, she descended towards the thin wisps of the updraft zone. Ahead, her systems were picking up one of the ever-present storms that spun the face of the world in endless pursuit of its smaller fellows. In its wake, the clouds were a churned-up mess of brown and green, as great colonies of sky moss were pulled up from the depths, torn apart and scattered, to slowly settle back down and regroup. Even running dark, her sphere would become more obvious the closer she got to the clouds rushing beneath her, a moat in the setting sun's brilliance. Her fingers moved over the helm controls, as familiar as any lover, more so, and the sphere dipped lower. Once cloaked in ammonia fog, she would be nearly invisible. Pilates' magnetosphere, screaming chaos across the radios of anyone near enough and masochistic enough to listen, would mask what faint whispers her ship traced in the depths. And they would be faint. She'd spent an obscene amount of credit on tech. The settlement trust from Gerardal Enterprise had been significant, even devised it was among the survivors. Seventeen of 164, she thought. Fifty-nine had died before she'd even been sold to the corp. Desperate parents trading another mouth they couldn't feed for food that wouldn't last. Whatever anger and hurt she might have had over it went away when she outlasted them, outlived her birth colony. She'd outlived the Enterprises, too, but that anger would not die down so easily. Memories and news kept it stoked. Iria and Lyline pulled apart by a mob on a Craig colony as suspected mutants. High killed in a bar fight she had most likely started. Odalai, High's opposite, the glue that kept them together insane, dead in a human's first bomb attack on an Ogololoi spaceport. The rest, one by one, dead in different violent or stupid or inevitable ways. With Merja's suicide, Sejoy was the last. And the whole balance of the trust and the burden of its ghost had come down to settle on her. And I brought them back here, she thought. Ha. Fucking Percival of the ghost girls. That's me. Last one left to find the grail. She set her sphere on a shallow descent, and watched the barometric pressure steadily climb as she fought the updraft and slipped deeper into ammonia fog. Tiny crystals began pinging off the hull. Just ice for now. Even through the thick hull, she knew the sound, and her skin prickled at the memory. A tiny row of scales flushed upright along her forearm, and absently she smoothed them back down. Another two killed down into Pilates' troposphere, the patter had become louder, smoother. She waited to hear the first thump of something larger than ice, the beginning of the storm she was seeking, but nothing. Elise was exaggerating, she told herself. Protectorate propaganda only. Still, even if exaggerated, 
Sejoy had seen with her own eyes how the planet had changed. She put her hand up on the console arm and switched on the external air buffers. Tiny jets would coat the outside of the dive sphere with a layer of moving air, deflecting all but direct hits around and away. That had cost. The roar of ice against the shell instantly faded, if not the uncertainty that had stuck claws into her back, sending distress signals up and down her spine. Below her, through the glass, she watched for any glints of light under the growing gloom of cloud cover as the barometer ticked steadily upwards. Helice! A man had come up behind them, put a hand on the back of Helice's chair. He was achingly handsome, tall and smooth-skinned, everything Sejoy was not. He was smiling, friendly, radiating confidence like his own small son. Ah, Ryan! Helice turned, beaming. This is Sejoy. You remember? I've talked about her. The kid. Without asking, he pulled over a chair from the next table over, turning it around and sitting down beside Helice at the table, close enough that their hips were touching. His smile grew wider. Hardly a kid. My apologies. Sejoy bit back a sharp reply. She and Helice were nearly the same age. Was it height that kept her from being a grown-up in these people's eyes? Or was it the unshakable stigma of victimhood writ large across her small frame? I don't want to talk about me with you, she thought. Instead, she asked, You're also in the Protectorate. Science and survey. Ryan is also part of my quad, Elise added. He leaned back. If you plan on being around here for a bit, I'm sure we can talk about trying Quint, he said. He winked. Variety is the spice of life and all that. I'm contented to stay solo, Sejoy answered, and I don't plan on being here long. Oh, he said, that's a pity. Perhaps sensing Sejoy was uncomfortable, Elise put her hand over Ryan's. Hey, I'm catching up with a friend here. Don't you have something to do, she asked. Johar and I are headed out to the Verisal tonight to take yet another of atmospheric samples. Work, work, work. But if you two want to skip dessert here, we have time for a different type of exploratory. Ryan, go away, Halise said. Now. He stood up, straightening his jacket. Can't blame me for trying, he said. Reaching out, he picked up her hand. She was too surprised to pull it away before he'd brought it to his lips, left a tender kiss on it, and let her go. I do hate to miss out on rare treasures. Don't mind him, Halise said as he sauntered off. He's as incorrigible as he's charming, but, well, he has his pluses. She was blushing as she said it, and she suddenly seemed so very far away, receding back into a stranger. Sejoy coughed, picking up another forkful of pasta to cover her discomfort. I'm sorry, she said. I'm not used to attention, at least not the flattering kind. I... look. Elise fidgeted in her chair. It wouldn't be a problem for me if you wanted some time alone with him. No, Sejoy said, more forcefully than she intended. Elise looked startled, then relieved. I'm not staying here very long, she added. I'm taking the next shuttle back out, tonight. She hadn't planned to, but she knew she would as soon as she said it. It was too complicated here, her ability to think lost in a muddle of unhappiness. Well, Elise said, managing a smile. I guess that means... We do have time for dessert. Sejoy held her dive sphere at 80 atmos pressure. This was as low as she'd ever gone. 
Even Gyrdal Enterprises, in all their greed, had known that pushing their divers further was too risky. They spent a lot on us, she thought. Custom-made monsters. She sat there for a while, nothing to see but thick, toxic cloud through the glass. When she closed her eyes at night, that same endless shade of gray pervaded her dreams. Throwing her hand down on the console, she resumed her descent. One last obligation before escape. Police had insisted Sujoy come to her scheduled talk, and since her shuttle was still more than two hours out, she saw no graceful way to say no. I may never see you again, Elise had said. Don't make me part of it, she'd insisted. The stepped hall was about half full. Sujoy settled in the back of the room, up against the wall, where the bright lights of the podium wouldn't reach. She wondered how many different colonies the people crowded into the seats towards the front represented. Colonies that had survived and thrived enough to produce something as frivolous and wasteful as tourists. To her, they all looked the same. She knew the planetary science inside and out. Maybe she hadn't known the word ammonia and hydrogen until after she'd been freed, but she knew how they felt, how they burned. Police walked out onto the floor and took up her space beside the podium, as if that was the most natural place for her to be. And when she began to speak, her voice was loud and clear and without hesitation. If her eyes roving the audience found Sejoy huddled at the back, her expression did not change. The lights dimmed as the stage screen cleared to a live pick from the planet below, and the audience oohed and awed on cue. The planet Pilati was taken into the protectorate custody after it was declared a natural wonder of the galaxy and deemed to be endangered. You might think it's hard to endanger a gas giant. Laughter. I was a junior staff member aboard the protectorate flagship, Lycian's champion, eleven years ago. You could hardly see this beautiful vista you are now viewing behind me. So thick were the poaching ships in orbit. And, of course, the Girdal Enterprise vessels. Elise pushed a button, and a giant blot of ugly ship appeared on the screen. The Ama. It threw Sejoy back in her seat, a visceral panic wrapping itself around her heart and lungs, and she had to force herself to breathe. It's an image, she told herself, an old image, nothing more. You watch that ship get towed into the scrap dock. Watch it turn into slag. Remember that. All of these ships had come for one thing and one thing only, Elise said. The Pilati Diamonds. At 120 Atmos, she put her sphere into autopilot, holding steady. It was dark now, full into night, but this far down it hardly mattered. She knew this planet the vortexes of this zone better than she knew herself. She'd been pushing up the pressure inside her sphere since she'd sealed herself into it two days earlier. It had been parked two hops out from the shuttle station that serviced the protectorate zone around Pilati, just in case anyone tried to follow her. No one had. She'd had a surprisingly easy time navigating the tiny dead spaces between protectorate sensors, which were set out to catch much bigger prey. Interior acclimatization was now nearly caught up. She could feel the changes in her body. A thousand tiny genetic switches thrown to wake the sleeping monster. It was time. She pulled on gloves and wrapped a control band on her left arm from the wrist to elbow. Powering it on, she checked that it was syncing properly with the helm control. 
then untethered herself from the ship's primary console. She pulled her boots off, carefully making sure the mag soles were on and she wouldn't suddenly end up with a heavy projectile in the cabin. Reaching overhead, she pulled open the storage bin, carefully extracting her exosuit from its pocket. She hated the feel of it against her skin. Even now, still lagging open at her chest, hood down, it felt like a thick, skin-tight prison. Sealing it down to the gloves, she slipped her boots back on. Taking a deep breath, she closed her eyes for a moment, preparing herself. Then she lifted the hem of her tank top, first one side, then the other, and connected the suit systems up to the implanted ports that ran directly into the cutting-edge, black-market hardware installed into her lungs. At the press of a button, her seat detached from the control arms and slid through the floor of the control cabin into the narrow space below, clamping onto ring rails with a solid clunk of inevitability. From her arm band control, she set the sphere to slowly rotate 180 degrees. Her seat, running along the rails, stayed at the lowest point as the ship moved around her. From the outside of the control cabin wall, in the easy reach above her face, she peeled off the equipment she'd wanted one piece at a time. Chute, fluid, recycling filters, charged high ox packs, the breathing apparatus and mouthpiece, the CO2 force exchanger. She attached them to her suit, hooked them into the control, and ran another set of checks on each before powering them live. Last was the breather setup. She inhaled deeply, enjoying the last chill breath of filtered air, before she clicked it into the spaceports that ran into her lung implants. Instantly, it began to fill her lungs with foam, and she fought the adrenaline fear as she choked on it. When she couldn't, not anymore, she breathed. Shaking, she tried to calm herself by checking her med status. Oxygen levels were rising again, back towards normal, as the nanofoam pulsed mechanically through her lungs, adapting itself to the parameters of her immediate environment. Last, she pulled her hood up around her head, sealed the faceplate. What claustrophobia that once would have brought, no longer noticeable against the overwhelming sensory impact of the breather, and clipped in a thick pair of IR goggles. One final check for paranoia's sake, and then she lay there for a moment, letting the last of the wild panic get eased out of her system by the intense focus that always took her pre-dive, from scared to angry to invincible. Tapping at her arm, she initiated the drop sequence. She reached up and gripped the ring rail's double bar as the countdown in the peripheral vision of her goggles hit single digits, then her heart racing. Zero. The hatch door below her yawned wide, her seat splitting in half to open with them. All that held her now was her own hands tied on the bars, and that brief recognition that, as always, the odds were against her return. She smiled and let go. Elise clicked again, and the Ama disappeared, replaced by an impossible, beautiful, glittering thing, a three-dimensional crystal snowflake set carefully on blue velvet. This is the largest specimen collected so far that we know of, Elise said. It is known as the Orbach Diamond, after the collector from whom it was confiscated. It should be Nimi's diamond, Sejoy thought. It was Nimi who caught it, who dove too deep and came back to writhe and flail and die on the floor of the ship, while the masters oohed and awed of her prize. They're remembered, 
but not the names and the faces of those who actually died for them. There used to be an entire industry set up around stripping Pilate of its diamonds, from wealthy collectors who coveted them to dealers who sold them, to the smugglers who supplied them to the ships like the one I just showed you, to the girls, some as young as five or six standards, who were thrown into the depths of the planet's atmosphere again and again to retrieve them. When the Protectorate was formed as a collaboration between Earth Alliance and the Gaian Collective, its first mission was to unravel the tangled cord that led us from this very diamond back to Pilate and discover the horrifying circumstances of the industry's smallest employees. Employees, Sidroy thought. She shook her head at the idea of it. She hadn't gotten paid. She hadn't gotten credit. If she had a good day, she got just enough food to survive on and just enough sleep to dream she was somewhere else. Anywhere else. The irony was that, since leaving, she only ever dreamt of being back here. A boy in the front row raised his hand, and Halise pointed to him. Why didn't they just use a machine to scoop them up? He said, his accent upper-class, howdy south. For one thing, the frightfully complex branches of the Pilati diamonds are very fragile. They are also razor-sharp. A machine that could collect and hold them without breaking off tips and spires would be very, very expensive. Sejoy so glanced down at her hands, palms up, and the myriad scars from cuts and cold burns that crisscrossed them. Cobwebs etched into her mottled skin, where the diamonds had sliced through her gloves year after year. Sharp. Oh, yes, she thought. And humans are so much cheaper than machines, both to buy and to replace. Now, I'm sure all of you came here because of the Pilate diamonds, and by now have already seen our collection of recovered specimens in our gallery on sea deck, Elise continued. But it may not be clear why the Protectorate is involved here. Our mission is the preservation of unique and endangered ecosystems. Does anyone know how that relates to Pilate? The front row boy spoke up again. Because it's alive, he said. What's alive? Elise asked crouching at the edge of the stage in front of him. The diamond. Right, Halise grinned. You're very smart. The diamonds are not geological artifacts at all, but the byproduct of a living organism. She stood, pacing back to the lectern, and clicked up a slide of tiny, bluish spheres. The diamonds begin as a tiny gaseous polyp in the upper atmosphere, sort of like a tiny limbless jellyfish, if anyone knows what that is. It feeds on sky moss spores and whatever aeroplankton it comes into contact with, which means they're almost always found along the edges of the stronger updraft zones, where there's more mixing of materials. Click. A new picture appeared, this time of the clouds from above, glistening under a rising sun. So does anyone know how these tiny polyps turn into these complicated crystalline structures? Or why? No hand from the audience this time. Elise crouched again in front of the howdy boy. Do you know what a pearl is? she asked. A bead, he said. Well, yes. She reached into her pocket and pulled out a pearl, magnified on the screen behind her, and held it out to the boy. She must have done this a thousand times, Sejoy thought. Part of her wondered if she planted the boy in the front row, or at least herded the family in that direction. But no, it was just that Elise was that good. Good with people, comfortable in her own skin. This is her element, not mine. Watching Halise explain pearls made her want to take her to the ocean. 
find her pearls of her own, real ones, and try to claim some small corner of Lisa's comfort zone to curl up in and rest. Polyp, as it expands, builds its diamond shell by an organic process of crystal vapor deposition. It serves to protect the polyp's thin outer membranes and acts as a mechanism for the polyp to excrete and contain elements that would otherwise be toxic in concentration. The exquisite structure you see behind me is the end result, although no two are the same. The older the polyp, the larger and more ornate the diamond shell. Also, the harder they are to find. Do you know why? One of the adults in the third row raised his hand. Because they break, he said. Yes, Elise said. While the external edges of the shell are very fragile, the base that envelops most of the polyp is literally as hard as diamond. It would take a significant event to fracture it and expose the delicate interior of the mantle cavity. And yet, ultimately, that's each of the polyps fate if not intercepted and removed from their environment. What breaks them? the boy asked. Asteroids! Another kid in the row shouted. No, something bigger than asteroids, Elise prompted. Comets! The answer is the planet itself. Elise clicked again and brought up a cross-section diagram of Pilati, showing all the layers of atmosphere in the gas giant, from the magnetosphere down to the metallic hydrogen wrapped around the purely theoretical core. As the polyps grow in size, they accumulate more material and become heavier. Their shape, concave from the underside, is designed to maximize the advantage of the stronger updrafts that create the light atmosphere bands that we see on the planet's face. But the heavier they grow, the farther and faster they sink. We're not sure how big they can get, but we do know that, eventually, they will fall far enough that they will be crushed, shattered, by the dense atmosphere. We also know that lining the interior of each diamond's mantle cavity is the next generation of polyps, waiting to soar on the updrafts back to the sunlight. There, they start the process all over again. From almost the very moment they are born, Elise finished, the Pilati diamonds are falling. To their deaths. In the years of the Alma, the divers all had large rings attached to their backs, so that after they'd made a good catch, crew on skimmers could hook them and pull them back on board. Not everyone was successfully retrieved. More than a few of Sejoy's friends, facing despair or illness or increasing attention from the crew as they matured, turned themselves belly up as they flew, ring out of reach, masters of their own fate at last. Now, Sejoy had tech on her side. Or technically above my head, she thought. The sphere, linked to her through her wrist controls, would stay a half-kill overhead as she rose and fell, and hunted. When she was ready, she could call it down to pick her up, and she'd return to the rest of human space with the largest Pilati diamond ever seen. It would be all hers, and she and the other Ama girls would be remembered at last and forever. She spread her arms and legs out, letting the thick fabric between them unfurl and fill with wind. She had never been this far down before, or felt so high. Sejoy soared. The upper left field of her goggles kept a translucent scanner map up, showing wind conditions, changes in pressure, and atmospheric density, and scanning for any of the deployed protectorate sensors that dotted the interior of the gas giant. Her body was small enough to pass undetected, and her sphere was kitted out with a fortune's worth of illegal stealth tech. But if either she or it crashed into one, 
it would be hard to stay unnoticed. The rest of her goggles were set to enhance what little existing light remained this deep and mark out anything ahead of her with a faint heat signature and density of the diamonds. She'd expected to be able to take her pick of the best and most beautiful of many. But for the longest time, she saw nothing at all. Am I on the wrong planet, she wondered? But she had a lifetime of gut instinct to know she was not. The idea that Helise was right and the diamonds were nearly extinct began to creep like a shiver up the back of her mind. And, fearing failure, after all this, she pulled her elbows and knees in, cannonballing, and let herself drop faster and further. Elise turned off the diagram, letting it go back to the vista of the live planet below. This is why the protectorate is here, she said. The larger and more valuable the specimen on the black market, the more its loss reduces the next generation. Even today, despite our patrols and our aggressive pursuit of diamond poachers, their numbers continue to dwindle. Can't you put them back? the boy asked. The creature itself is very delicate. Take it out of the planet's atmosphere, and they die almost instantly. Also, the diamonds need a certain population density to reproduce. From the time they reach about four centimeters in interior diameter, they begin releasing spores into the air. As others take those spores in with other atmospheric and organic material, it fertilizes the growing polyps inside. Fewer diamonds means less spores, fewer viable polyps, and the cycle continues to degrade. We have tried... She was interrupted by a familiar figure, stepping onto the stage. Hello, gentle peoples, Ryan called out when he reached her mic. He was wearing his uniform now, and he looked like a hollow novel hero in it. Too perfect to be entirely real. I just got back from some planetary science work and need to go out to meet our super ship, but I wanted to check in and see how everyone is doing. Are you learning a lot of good things tonight? There was a smattering of yeses and clapping from the audience. Ryan stood beside Halise, snuck an arm around her waist. Halise here is the Protectorate's best and brightest, he said. But you have a rare treat here with you, among you tonight. So Joy saw Halise's expression change, figuring out where Ryan was going just moments after she had herself. Halise started to shake her head, opening her mouth to speak, but Ryan was ahead of her. Up there at the very back, we have the last of the Ama Divers. A spotlight zoomed in on her and she was blinded. She threw an arm over her face and scrambled to get out of her chair, intent on fleeing. She's just coming down to tell us what it was really like in the golden age of Pilates, Ryan said. The more of the audience began to clap and cheer. He jumped off the stage and intercepted her, holding out his hand. Reluctantly, she let Ryan guide her up onto the stage, pulling her hand free of his as soon as she was up. Police moved to stand beside her, and her hand replaced Ryan's, squeezing gently, as if to either say, I'm sorry, or I'm here. So tell us, Ryan said, directing the mic at her. What was it like? She took a deep breath, trying not to stare out over the sea of expectant faces in front of her. When the words came, they were calm, clear, and relentless. No one knows how many of us there were to start with, but many hundreds. We are all either stolen or bought as small children and taken to an illegal genmod lab outside of Alliance Space. We were all girls, because girls are cheaper to buy, and fewer people care about what is done to us, and because we handled modding and radiation better than boys. Those of us who survived their treatments, 164 of us, were then brought to Pilati, she said. 
Many of us were too young to even remember our real names, so we named each other and tried to be a family. We were cold and hungry, and we were beaten if we didn't find good-sized diamonds or if we damaged them. A few of us were too clumsy. A few of us who were too clumsy were killed in cold blood to motivate us to be more careful. Most of us died out there in the clouds, freezing or having our lungs filled with carbon dioxide too heavy to exhale, or in the floor of our dormitory after a dive decompressing too fast, or or our lungs collapsing, or from embolism or nitrogen narcosis, or just from too much exhaustion and malnutrition and radiation and despair. Our masters made fortunes off our work, and we didn't even own the clothes on our own backs. There were 17 of us left alive when the protectorate raided the Yardel ships, broken and abused and half-feral adolescents. We spent six years here in a special protectorate rehabilitation facility, learning to read and write and take care of ourselves and learning how to be human. I'm the last still alive. That. There is what your golden age was like. Letting go of Felisa's hands, she stepped off the stage and walked out of the auditorium, leaving dead silence in her wake. Her suit display was a frantic chorus of yellow pressure warning lights when she found the diamonds at last, a loose cluster dropping down through the clouds a half kill away. The smallest of them was easily bigger than the Orbach diamond, and the largest... My grail, she thought. Unfurling her suit again, she halted her plummet, gliding laterally towards the cluster. Nothing mattered now except that one falling diamond. She was the hunter, the predator, the power. One final time. The cluster blinked out. What the hell, she swore. Her lungs full of foam, she could only mouth the words. The mouthpiece picked up the movements and translated them in her own synthesized voice. So quickly it seemed exactly as if they were her own. The diamonds couldn't just disappear. Could they? She pulled back the zoom on her goggles and found her answer. A large ship, also running dark, had parked itself between her and them. She repeated her oath. Her momentum was going to carry her straight into it. Using her suit's fold, she did her best to slow herself down as she flew and tried to gain altitude. She was mere meters above the large engines as she crashed into the back hull. Scrambling, she got her feet up against it and switched on her mag boots, adhering instantly to the slippery surface. Straightening, she walked up the hull away from the heat and the radiation of the engines, and towards answers. Painted on the ship's exterior in letters taller than she was, she found the word Veresiel and the protectorate coat of arms. Ryan's survey ship. Bastard, she thought. She wanted to pound her fist on the hull, call him out for a fight. Why the fuck did he have to take atmospheric samples here, now, when she was so close? Why dark? She could feel vibration in the hull through her boots, and moments later, a dozen drones launched from the underside of the ship. They were an odd configuration. A standard hauler drone with a large, transparent dome, open and down, mounted underneath. Puzzled, then dumbfounded, she watched on full zoom as the drones fell in just above the falling diamonds and slowly caught up until their dome began to eclipse it. No, you'll break them, you idiots, was her first thought. But as soon as the diamond was within the dome, jets mounted in the top filled the entire thing with a thick, hardening foam. It was, she had to admit, genius. 
each drone, now occupied with its illegal hull, turned back towards the Varesial. Sejoy walked down the side of the hull, staying close enough to the engines that she trusted they would mask any noise her magboots made on the hull, and watched as bay doors opened wide to admit the drones. Stacked inside, dozens high and wide, layers thick, were more glass tubes, opaque interiors concealing what she already knew was inside. Oh, Elise, she said. Your protectorate can't catch the poachers because they are the poachers. It made sense. Who else would have the technology, resources, and inside knowledge to systematically strip the world of its diamonds? It had taken her nearly all of the enormous Giardial Trust to prepare for stealing one. Sick, she turned her goggles on record as the drones, free of their cargoes, picked up new domes and sped out again towards the diminished cluster. It was clever. It was clever. Go out on survey. Strip mine as many diamonds as you can from well down in the atmosphere. Meet up with the supply ship and hand them off. Once the diamonds were extinct, sell them off slowly, one by one, for huge, ever-escalating prices. I do hate to miss out on rare treasures, Ryan had said. An honest liar. Ahead of them, one of the drones turned and dove toward the diamond she had picked out. Oh, no, you don't, she thought. That one's mine. Running along the top of the ship towards the front, she no longer cared what noise she made. Racing over the bridge window, no time to look for startled faces to enjoy the gotcha moment. She hit the Varesial's nose and launched herself back out into the air. Cannonballing, she hurled past drone and diamond. Throwing her arms out, the updraft slammed into her like a wall and she braced herself as she threw her back upwards. Reaching out both hands, she grasped the diamond, feeling the spires puncture gloves and skin, just as they always had, as her grip on it closed just enough to hold. Mine. The drone, detecting a larger object than it could handle, heading towards it at speed, veered away just moments before collision, and she spun with the diamond up past it, momentum still pulling her upwards. Something flew past her, horizontally, very close, and fast. She spun around and saw the next hull-puncturing missile coming just in time to tuck and drop below it. The status lights on her suit slowly started flickering from yellow into orange. She was getting too low, too close to the recommended tolerances of even her gen-modded body and cutting-edge apparatus. The diamond's razor limbs cut into her through her suit, sending more warning lights flaring through her display as she held it against her chest with one hand to free the other. Quickly, she tapped out the start code on her control for the retrieval sequence and then deployed her chute. Once again, she was accelerating skywards as the air filter canopy and lifted her high and fast. She needed to get clear of the Varesial and rendezvous with her sphere before it caught up. Now far below her, the Varesial turned and was banking upwards. As it finally got its nose pointed at her, another hull missile, a brilliant lightning bolt of white in her goggles, streaked up towards her. You're wasting your time, she said, tucking her canopy supports and shifting her position well out of its path. But even if she hadn't, it would have missed her by a fair width. Would it crest the atmosphere, give away the poachers by their own hand? She glanced up, but her chute canopy blocked her view of it. Proximity alarms started going off on her link to the sphere. Shit, she realized. They weren't shooting at me. 
She scrambled her sphere out of the way, just in time. It registered the projectile passing less than three meters off its port side. Hitting her would be nearly impossible, and the sphere was nimble enough that it could dodge indefinitely if set on auto-evade. But the sphere would have to stop moving for her to get on board. They can't afford for me to tell anyone what I've seen, or they'll lose everything, she realized. They have no choice but to kill me. Using her wrist panel, she tried to open a communication out, but her signal was being jammed. The Varesial had slowed its climb, recognizing that time was on its side, and merely had to wait for her to either panic and try and reach her sphere, or die when her air ran out. Fuck you, she shouted down at the ship. I choose option number three. The option she had always had waiting for her. With her free hand, she sent her sphere up and away, at a bone-crushing speed even she could not have survived. When it crested the upper levels of the troposphere, outside the range of Vressiel's jammers, she opened a comm channel through it, bouncing off the shuttle station back towards the protectorate orbital and Halisa's node. She picked up almost immediately. So Joy. Elise was confused, her hair disheveled, her room behind her dark. I've woken her, so Joy realized. Where are you? Not much point in lying. I'm on a dive, she said. I... You're what? Elise was instantly awake. No, 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 no. Tell me. Elise, you need to shut up and listen. I found your poachers. I don't have much time. I'm sending you the video, which should be all you need to find the rest of the group. You'll understand when you see it. But I'm putting it on an hour delay before it'll unpack. What? Why an hour? Because I am what I am. You're my only human friend, and I'm sorry I've disappointed you. What do you mean, human friend? You're just as human as... I don't think I ever quite was. Although I tried. Goodbye, Halise. So Joy cut her off set the recording from her goggles to upload straight into the station's catch on an ever-shifting frequency to avoid jamming. It would keep sending data until her goggles shut off, or died. Connection stable, and no longer in need of the sphere, she turned it around, sending it hurtling back down into the atmosphere at maximum speed. Above her, the Varesia was still in its climb, still thinking it was the hunter in this game. From this angle, staring up the engines, she could almost imagine it was the Ama. She smiled as the ship suddenly turned hard to starboard, desperately attempting to change course. Her dive sphere was smaller, faster. The Varesial didn't have a chance. It was too slow, would always be too slow. Her dive sphere hit just forward of the cargo bay. Pieces of the ship flew out and down as the Varesial splintered and broke. The sphere emerged from its rent underbelly, deep gouges marking its once sleek sides, panels ripped off, the interior cabin exposed. It continued its fall, unresponsive now, in a halo of debris and glass domes. Sejoy's suit was all red lights now, life support systems starting to fail, but she didn't care. She could feel the tiny pinprick of needles up and down her legs and arms as the suit, recognizing a terminal situation, dumped as many painkillers and anti-anxiety meds into her vein as it could. The calm cocktail. She fell, her perfect diamond resting on her chest, droplets of blood leaving a trail in the air above her. She'd forgotten how light they were, how beautiful.
I got the biggest one, Halise, she said, knowing the words would eventually make their way to her. For the record. The remains of the Ressiel broke nearly in two, plunged down through the clouds past her into darkness. She could see the heat signatures of the diamond clusters above them now, safe and sound, such as they were. Born falling to their deaths, Elise had said. So was I. Below, there were flashes of a storm, lightning arcing through the dense clouds. Breathing was hard, the foam in her lungs starting to feel like cement like a billion angry ants. And despite the drugs, her body hurt almost beyond what she could bear. In her hands, the diamond suddenly shattered, imploding. A million beautiful shards of crystal crushing in on itself. Around her, the air filled with thousands of tiny gold droplets. Through narrowing vision, she watched as they opened like tiny umbrellas and caught the wind, soaring up and away, free. Show-offs, she said. One goggle lens cracked, then the other. She couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't breathe. Wasn't sure she was even trying anymore. She fell into the storm, alone but for her ghosts, and was gone. Elise caught up with her just as she was about to board the shuttle. Sejoy, she called out, reaching her, pulling her into an embrace. I'm so sorry about Ryan, she said. Sejoy just nodded. I'm sure he meant no harm. Elise let her go. I'm not ever going to see you again, she said. No, I don't think so. You'll take care of yourself. I'll do my best. Elise nodded. Well then, she said. I'm glad I got to see you one more time, anyhow. I can eat enough. Me too, Sejoy said. She nodded. And then, because she didn't know what else either of them could possibly say, turned back and stepped through the airlock into her shuttle and did not look back. It would be a few hours out to the space station, then two more short hops to where she'd parked her sphere, ready and waiting for her and her alone. She felt free, unburdened, master of her destiny. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Suzanne, Suzanne. What a story. Thank you so much for that. And Eva, just immense reading there thank you so much just just hits that nail on the head thank you so much so that is starship so i hope you've enjoyed it what a show i hope you enjoyed it that much that you think ah so i'll listen to the show i'll go and support that young fella notice i say young it's my birthday on the 19th of july 40 and eight man where's that gone where's that i was just a kiddie when i honestly i'm not joking here as well i was I didn't have grey hair when I started Starship's over. I mean, Kieran didn't have grey hair. Now, it's I like to call it salt and pepper. <laughs> Sprinklings of grey in there. God, I've been doing it so many years. So, 
I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, I hope you've, you know, appreciate kind of the work we put in, everyone puts in, and it'd be fantastic if you support us. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.